Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Hello and thanks for tuning in. I'm Jordan Gladden from Kishwaukee Bible Church. I'm glad you're with us this morning. Um, let me start first with a headline. Google finally admitted that they cannot read our minds. Um, it's our fault, really. We're just too unpredictable. Google, the world's largest search engine, improves its performance by pre-calculating all the things it thinks you will search for, so before you even ask it, it has the answer. For years, the development team has attempted to predict all possible combinations, and at times thought it had completed its task. Well, we've been proving it wrong daily for 15 years. We're 15% of daily internet searches are new to the system. We just keep coming up with more things. The team finally admitted that they would not be able to predict this nearly 500 million new searches a day and eventually just gave up trying. Uh, this was an important lesson for Google and an equally important lesson for us as it relates to the ways we might be predicting the extents of the kingdom of heaven. What do I mean by this? At times, I think we can be so sure of where God isn't working that we tend to label those areas as lost causes. Without much digging, I'm sure we could all list those struggles in our lives that seem beyond his victory, those people in our lives who seem beyond his saving grace, and our world that would just seem beyond his redeeming at all. In today's scripture, we're going to see that the kingdom of heaven, that is where the rule and reign of Jesus Christ dwells, unexpectedly moved beyond the nation of Israel and brought about a faith in a, in a Roman centurion, and the results of which left Jesus amazed. We will see that every believer should, should seek and pray for his kingdom to come. For wherever the kingdom of heaven engages people, it calls people to a faith that displays itself in humility and a dependence upon the word of God. That is where we find hope for ourselves, hope for our community, and hope for our world in the upside-down kingdom of Jesus Christ. Let me remind you a bit of where we've been in the book of Matthew so far. John the Baptist called people to repent and to prepare for this kingdom of heaven. Jesus begins his ministry as the prophet who is greater than Moses, and he goes up the mountain not to receive the law, but in his authority to give the law again to his people. At the Sermon on the Mount, he announced that the kingdom of heaven was here, and he explained all about how this upside-down kingdom works. Jesus then came down from the mountain and is about to show us all what the kingdom of heaven looks like when it is brought into people's lives. Here is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, of the gospel. In this section of scripture, we see a collection of miracles performed by Jesus as the kingdom is advancing with amazing results wherever it goes. We're going to start by reading today's scripture passage, which is Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, 
he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. This passage tells us that Jesus marveled in response to this revealed faith. And when Scripture tells us that the Son of God, the King of Kings, marveled at something, we have to take note. We have to pause and research this and see what exactly caught his attention. That is why we're looking at this passage this morning, and I believe the Word of God has much to say to us. So let's pray. Lord, speak to us. Open your ears to hear, open our hear, ears to hear your Word and our hearts to respond to your Spirit. Grow our faith in you and move us in obedience for your glory. Amen. Well, at face value, the story is all about healing. Uh, the centurion's servant was healed. And truly, the story could have ended there, focusing entirely on Jesus' power and ability to heal suffering. And he would have been worthy of all of our praise. But it doesn't. It takes one big leap farther and focuses instead on how the kingdom of heaven is defining a new people by faith, and that that faith bears the fruit of humility and dependence on the Word of God. Let's look into it and see what Jesus found so amazing. Well, it starts when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Well, the passage says that a centurion, that being a Roman officer who was in charge of a hundred soldiers, he approached Jesus and appealed to him for the healing of his servant. At this request, I can imagine it could have created a tense scene. Jesus always seemed to have a crowd around him. And I can just imagine the murmur in the crowd as they debated what his response could have been. Certainly there could have been two thoughts, right? You know, those who thought he was the Messiah and a military ruler could look at the Romans and say, well, he's our enemy. Why would he help him? He's, Jesus is going to free us from the Romans. And yet on the other side, those who might have just heard him up on the mountain, teaching them to love their enemies. I, I'm sure they might have thought, I, I'm sure Jesus wasn't thinking of the Romans when he said that. Let's see what he does here. Is he going to stick to his word? Well, Jesus, without delay, replied to the centurion. He said to him, I will come and heal him. I do want to point out, how sure his answer is. And what I mean is, he didn't say to him, I will come and see your servant. I will come and help your servant. Jesus, with all authority, says, I will come and heal. It is definite. It is defined. And we have a powerful God that we serve. Let me first highlight in all of this that Jesus shows us that his kingdom will be defined by faith. Okay, we'll skip down a little bit to 10. It says, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What does this mean? Um, I would put it this way, that Jesus is redefining the bounds of the kingdom. 
he turned to the Jews and kind of said, you know, you thought you were in because you had the scriptures and you were the physical descendants of Abraham. <laughs> but no, my kingdom transcends these boundaries and those without faith will be rejected. This was unexpected. Google could not have predicted this one. This was shocking news. I love the similar discourse between John the Baptist and the Pharisees. As John was out baptizing those in the Jordan River, a group of Pharisees came to him and he rebuked them. And in that rebuke, he says this, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children uh, for Abraham. He basically says it doesn't matter your pedigree. I am creating a new kingdom and its, its bounds are no longer going to be by the nation, but by those who I claim in faith. Roman soldiers were known to be brutal and largely immoral. You know, this centurion was not a person in which any virtue was likely to be found. The faith of the centurion was equally unexpected. It's a nice contrast, kind of, of he who was high-ranking considers himself nothing and humbled himself before the Lord, while the Jews rested in their privilege as descendants of Abraham and refused the Christ. The kingdom was being brought to all peoples and being defined not by Jew or Gentile, slave or free, but by faith alone in Jesus. It's, om it's almost as if Jesus is telling us not to be surprised when, when faith emerges from the most unexpected corners, much like a flower growing up through a crack in the pavement. In fact, if you, if you trace all the stories in Matthew, I think you'll see that the majority of those who followed Christ were largely unimportant and irreligious, just like we were. These are the people who are transformed by their faith in Jesus and follow him. Well, let's continue this story by looking at how the faith in the centurion is displayed even more by his humility. We'll see that his humility is displayed in what he serves, in what he says, and in where he is silent. So firstly, the centurion demonstrates his humility in what he serves. Have you ever stopped to think about how unusual this care is for his servant? Servants were among the lowliest class and could be replaced at a whim. Certainly, the centurion could have received a replacement when his stopped working, in the same way we might dispose of a spent coffee maker or broken toaster. Instead, he troubles himself to seek out the Lord to come and heal this person who is next to worthless in that society. How godly is this attitude, and what a reflection this is of the upside-down kingdom. How similar this is to our Savior, who considered our worthlessness and helpless estate when he came down to wash our feet and to die for our sins. Surely this is a learned behavior and evidence of the work of the kingdom of heaven in the life of this soldier. Secondly, the centurion demonstrates his humility in what he says. His reply to Jesus in verse 8 was, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. The centurion says that he is not worthy, and he is not worthy. <laughs> There's a lot packed into this simple statement. First, I think it's interesting that the centurion does not say that his servant isn't worthy, but himself. 
And if he considers himself not worthy, then certainly a servant was even less. So you see the humility displayed even there. Uh, even more so, the word he uses for worthy is the same word that John the Baptist used when speaking of the coming Messiah. He says in Matthew 3.11, I will baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. This is not a light word in any way, but it carries the full weight of humble reverence. The idea here is much like Isaiah before the throne of God, having seen all of his glory, then seeing himself, and kind of calls a curse on himself and says that I am undone. I am, I am wicked. Or that of Simon Peter when Jesus performs a miracle and fills the nets of their fishing boat. And he turns to Jesus and he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. This is not an act of feigned meekness, but rather that biblical humility begins when our eyes are opened by his grace to see ourselves as we are, which is worthless, empty-handed, and ever-needy in the presence of God. Lastly, the centurion demonstrates his humility in where he is silent. The centurion doesn't appeal to the Lord based on his good works, of which we find that there actually were many. Luke's account of the story adds in this detail. Luke 7, 3 through 5 says, When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded. They pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. The Jewish elders thought pretty highly of the centurion and thought he was a good man. It says that he loved the nation and it even built their synagogue. The elders argued with Jesus that he was worthy of having the servant healed because of his works. What's most striking is the centurion makes no such claim. He never talks about what he has done, and he understands himself rightly as unworthy in the presence of the Lord. So he, in this way, he demonstrates, in, in, demonstrates his humility in where he is silent. Truly, we are all worthless as he was, whether Jew or Gentile, for we have all sinned and before God have nothing to offer and everything to receive. <clears throat> Let's continue the story. Sorry. Um, the centurion's humility was not only the evidence, not the only evidence of the work of the kingdom in his life. As we see in his full response, his faith was revealed by a great dependence on the authority of the Word of God. Let's look again at his response on uh, 8 through 10. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. Come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled, and he said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with none in Israel have I found such faith. Surely the centurion was a man under authority. As an officer under authority, any command from Rome was to be executed swiftly and completely, with any failure resulting in the likely loss of position and life. 
and the same would apply to any under his authority. He states that if he can command those under his authority, and it is done as he commands, so too the Son of God is the highest authority, needs only to speak the words for his will to be done. And according to this passage, that's exactly what happens. He speaks, go and let him be healed. And at that moment, the servant was healed. This is not the first time we've seen a demonstration of the power of the words of God. I'll offer just two other examples. How about this phrase? Let there be light. Out of nothing, God speaks and it happens. It is there. Light created out of nothing. I'll give you one more. I am. This is the term God uses for himself. He describes himself to Moses as this. He says, when you go to Pharaoh, tell him, I am, says these things. When Jesus was being arrested in the garden before his crucifixion, the soldiers and the chief priests and the guard ask him, are you Jesus of Nazareth? He replies with the same phrase, I am. And at the utterance of these words, the soldiers step back and involuntarily fall to the ground because of the power of what was just spoken. The centurion knew that the very words of Christ were the same power that created all things. He believed that there was no need for Jesus to travel or touch his servant, only for him to command his healing, and it would be done. At this, Jesus marveled. At this, Jesus was amazed. I would contend that the greatest challenge we face is not the virus of today or the economy of tomorrow, neither is it the broken relationships we live in or the sin that we still wrestle with on this side of glory, for they too are under His authority and accomplish all the purposes of His grace. No, instead, our greatest challenge today is believing the gospel, believing in the spoken words of God. I could sum it up probably in four points. You know, do we believe when we read that we have all broken God's laws and have nothing good within ourselves? Do we believe when we read that God sent his son to become sin for us and die in our place? Do we believe that all authority in heaven and earth was given to Christ and he declared victory over sin when he cried out from the cross, it is finished? Do we believe that he rose again and gives his right standing with God to those who believe? The only thing more powerful than these words is the one from whom they are spoken. Imagine how powerfully our lives might point people to our King Jesus if we believed these words and then the authority of the one who spoke them. In the same way, we depend daily on food and water. In this passage, we saw how the kingdom of heaven went where no one could have predicted, brought faith out of places no one would have expected, and is defining its people, the people of the kingdom, by faith. And that faith being marked with humility and by a dependence on the spoken words of God. As we examine our lives, would Jesus marvel at our faith? Would the world marvel at our faith because it points people to the God who is great? Have we surrendered our lives and, and do we receive with joy the reign of his kingdom in all areas? 
Are our lives marked with the same humility and dependence on the word of God that drove this centurion to serve those under his command and to live by faith? Maybe you're too much like me and, and you're praying daily that God would grow your faith and that you would walk in humility and dependence on the word of God. Lord, in the lack of faith in the dark corners of our own lives, Lord, we pray, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. For those around us in need of his salvation, in our families and in our community, those with whom we've lost hope, Lord, we pray, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. For those around the world, where from every tongue, tribe, and nation, the kingdom will make worshipers of Jesus. In the darkest countries and in the remote areas where the light of the good news of Jesus Christ has not yet dawned, Lord, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And all these things for his glory we pray. Amen. joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible.org.